This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Okay, and we are back in the dark room. Uh, I'm Brad Kelly. This is my co-host Kevin Kautzman. We are uh, we are we're we're matching today, kind of. Pumped, we yeah, black, do. yeah, black on black on black. <laughs> um, None more black. It yeah, is the art yeah. of darkness, right? It is art of darkness. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah, and that is our guest. That is our guest, Ross Benjamin. Uh, before we launch into that, I just want to say. Uh, we're very excited to do this episode. There's some chatter already in our Telegram uh, channel, t.me slash artofdarkpod. I know some folks in there have bought the Kafka Diaries and are reading them, and there's enthusiasm in there. So I know there's going to be a bunch of people listening to this um, who who are sort of with the book next to them. It's a beautiful edition. Just It as is an, an extremely yeah. handsome volume as it a is, bibliophile. Cover Ross. designer um, Peter Mendelssohn. Okay. The library, uh, mm -hmm. they share motifs, that, but he uses the motifs very differently from book to book in the Shokin Kafka library, Peter Mendelssohn. Yeah. yeah, I've seen the style in the in some of the other volumes. Yeah. I don't actually, this is the only one I have, I think, by him. I think I had my whole Kafka library before, yeah. but um, yeah. It's so, a well, book as an object that you, when you get it, you know you have it. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> precious. Yeah. It's heavy. I was, uh, when I got it, it was because I'd seen the thumbnail of it, which if you look on Amazon, it looks like an amazing graphic, but something about the paper like texture and the exact, sorry, I'm not giving no. that wrong. No, it's all right. That's all right. Exact quality of the uh, color. Um, yes. <laughs> just when I first opened the box, it was also, yeah, yeah I already, you must have, it, mm. that it was 
Oh, oh okay. Very We're cool. gonna get it to let me introduce people. Let me introduce the crowd <laughs> to you. And that's okay. This is great. Um, we're joined today by Ross Benjamin. Ross Benjamin is the translator of the newly released, uh, newly released, hot off <laughs> the presses, it. Kafka Diaries. Um, this is a project for which he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. His other translations include uh, Frederick Holdren's Hyperion, Joseph Roth's Job, uh, Daniel Kelman's You Should Have Left, and uh, Tile. Am I pronouncing that right? Tile, actually, Hill. But it's okay. with a Y, so I can see how you could. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure. Okay, I, I clearly haven't read it either. Uh, and was awarded the Helen and Kurt Wolf Translators Prize for her re for his rendering of Michael Mars speak uh, Nabokov. Um, you can learn more about Ross at rossmbenjamin.com. And Ross, before we get into it, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Um, and also just thanks, even if you, we'd never got to talk to you, thanks for doing this book. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. yeah I mean, th this is, this is awesome. Um, what hey, has... hang on, hey, hang on one second, Ross. Yes. I second this. Uh, yeah. I was looking at the handwriting that you're dealing yeah. with. Uh, and of course you're dealing with an existing translation then, and then also his, the executor of his literary estate. What was that fellow's name again? Uh, Max Broad, yeah. Broad. Uh, when I cracked this open and I read your introduction, all I could think was how much labor <laughs> must have gone into this. Yeah. So, yes, thank you. But, uh, just to be fair, I didn't have to transcribe the handwriting. There was a German edition. That, oh, okay. Um, that, okay. Uh, That's helpful. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Yes, Still, the, trans the translation job is just staggering. Yeah. 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 And this was a this was a, a seven or eight year process, is my understanding. Train yeah. translation. It from start to finish, it was eight years. I mean, there was time in there where it was with an editor, and I could do other things, and mm. managed to translate a couple of other books. But certainly, if I hadn't been doing it, I would have done probably many other things because it was uh, pretty um, consuming over those eight years. Um, but uh, it wasn't like I worked on it every single day for those eight years. But it's still. Most of that time, most of most work days in those eight years, I was um, plugging away at, at Kafka's wow. tires. Yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a certainly well, no, plugging away is even the right word. It was more like <laughs> sort of you know circling in the vortex of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it What's it like being in uh, old Franz's head, his old noggin, for seven <laughs> or eight years? You know, it's like I don't even know if that was the source of my. Um, like my situation really mirrored in a way Kafka's psyche in that I, nothing was ever certain. I could always circle back and start again and I could never, you know, make progress. There was a kind of um, uh, paralyzing doubt and anxiety that was very reminiscent of Kafka's psyche, but I don't think it's quite because of the sort of mind meld of translation, but rather just because it is so difficult to translate that translating Kafka just happens to be one of those um, types of experiences that he also describes so much in his fiction where um, there's really no um, handhold uh, mm. or foothold, um, no hold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think for people to kind of understand that Tell us a little bit about what your translation philosophy was, because there was previous ed English editions of the diaries, and these are very different. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a long saga, in fact, and I'll try to um, 
condense it as well as I can. But um, when it it starts really with Kafka's death in 1924, he's 40 years old. Uh, I know you've covered this in other episodes, the biography. He died of um, complications of tuberculosis, laryngeal tuberculosis, mm-hmm. uh, at 40. And um, he had left in charge of his literary estate, his unpublished writings and manuscripts, his closest friend, Max Brod, uh, literary executors now. The title that Brode famously um, holds, even though in his lifetime, Brode himself was a really prolific writer, far more prolific than Kafka, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, far more of a sort of um, operator on the literary scene. Um, um, So Kafka had left uh, actually more than one letter, I think, but his last testament to Brode um, um, stated that he wanted Brode to burn all of his unpublished, to collect first and then burn his unpublished manuscripts, diaries, letters, they were in different places. Um, he'd given his diaries to Milena, um, one of his uh, later loves of his life. Um, uh, you know, letters were with their recipients mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and he wanted Broad to destroy them. Broad, almost immediately after his death, set about doing the opposite um, and publishing them. Um, in publishing them, however, he took considerable liberties in um, editing the text as he saw fit, which was often pretty heavily, um, in order to make it appear much more coherent, cohesive, and um, polished than it was, because these were unfinished manuscripts with all of their disarray and missing punctuation, misspelling, um, you know, contractions, mistakes, uh, things out of sequence, and so on, and. Um, he imposed a kind of orderliness and tidiness on the text. And then he also censored in the letters and diaries things that he found to be compromising or unflattering to Kafka, to himself, to others. Um, and uh, this process went on over decades. So, you know, he started with the unpublished novels and those really hurtled Kafka to a level of, you know, worldwide uh, renown that he hadn't had in his lifetime. He'd had a kind of limited and enthusiastic readership uh, among other uh, prominent literary and cultural figures, but not as much of um, nothing like what he right, experienced right. after his death uh, as a result, probably of the publication of these, um, of the trial, the castle, America, these great unfinished novels that Broad published in somewhat um, uh, manipulated fashion. And then later he started to publish the kind of what you would think of as the more autobiographical writings, even though it's complex, but the letters and diaries and so on. Yeah. And um, the diaries in particular, you know, because it's the most intimate writing, uh, he censored things that seemed all too revealing of aspects of Kafka that he found threatening to the image of Kafka he was promoting um, yeah. in the public that... mind. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And, you know, I think about Max Brode sometimes because he does seem like a guy, he's sort of a um, uh, a literary ethics thought experiment a little bit, right? right? It's sort of like, well, should he have burned the letter, burned all all the stuff like Kafka asked? Well, I'm glad he didn't. Okay, should he have manipulated the diaries? Probably not. But also, you know, it... I find myself sort of all over the map with Max yeah. Brode to the extent yeah. that I understand what he did. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I could never really wish to take it all back. and uh, But right. I could probably wish that 
he made the decision to publish it with a bit more ambivalence, a bit less ambivalence, or yeah. a bit uh, if he owned the decision more by really publishing what was there, yeah. uh, or that he was at least more transparent about what he was doing. So that was the other right. issue where, I mean, his edition of the diaries, the introduction says like, this is as complete, almost as complete an edition as could be imagined. And right. Yeah. Of, if you put um, that, that label on that, then that's, that's this deceitful yeah. right you know yeah. people publish their loved ones diaries who uh, have literary claim and sometimes they'll say in the forward you know i've um i've taken out things i found too personal or yeah. that i didn't want people to know about my loved one you know right right didn't say that he even insisted on oh i left in everything that you can see how faithful i was because i left in even <laughs> things that are unflattering to me which is a half truth because he left in some things that were unflattering to him that obviously he could tolerate and he cut mm. things that were really uh that really got to him mm. that were unflattering to him that yeah. really uh, wounded him he just cut them because he you know interesting too damaging to the reputation well and what were what were some of these things that he <laughs> cut yeah so his own uh the 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 one that i'm thinking of now that was unflattering to him in a way that he couldn't tolerate was um a reference to a review of a reading he'd given, um, I think it was in Berlin, of um, his own poetry or his own writing, and then also the poems of Franz Berfel, who was hmm. at that time a rising star. And um, and the review sort of snarkily said that he had read the far more significant Berfel. Uh, and that he had been selfless in reading this, you know, much better writer. Mm. Um, and, and it and it had a few other little jibes at him. But mm. the rest of it could have been read as as a roughly positive review. Um, mm. So he he Broad brought that review to the Prague Daily newspaper to have mm. it reprinted and cut those. <laughs> oh, nice! That, Love it. Uh, uh, you know, that were wounding to him. And this was also the reviewer was somebody he went on to have like a lifelong feud with, like, I think he mentions it in his autobiography, how wounded he was by this review, the like mm. circle of people um, that this reviewer was with in the literary scene had all just recently kind of parted ways with Broad and they were starting to no longer um, be so affectionate toward each other. And so uh -huh. it was this whole kind of, you know, psychodrama. And so he cut those lines and then Kafka noted in his diaries precisely that. It's a diary entry about Broad being censorious of that review. <laughs> and then that's the diary entry that Broad went and tampered with in the exact same way, cutting the parts that referred to that and leaving in the rest yeah. um, of the entry. Um, so it's just, it's humorous and it's sort of petty. Um, yeah. It's, well, yeah, it's a one lie. You got to keep that one. Right, sometimes right. you tell one line, you end up having to keep covering. I think the it's also just that his feelings were so hurt by that that you know yeah. he left in stuff that maybe he felt was unflattering, but it reflected well on him that he left it in. You know, right, um, right, right. As opposed to what was unflattering, but just made him look, you know, yeah, not, in not a particular way. way. But this I is the notice. sign. Hang on, Brad. This is the yeah. sign of a vital literary scene. And right. <laughs> we're we're trying to do something. We're we're trying to start some podcast feuds, but we'll right. we'll put right. that aside for now. You, this is good. This is a good <laughs> thing. All of this, ah, juice, juice, Yeah. The final touch on this background that that people might need is that you know that edition of the diaries that Broad had tampered with, and he, the other kind of stuff he cut were, and we could get into it later, were like looter things mm -hmm. that made Kafka seem like you know more lascivious, maybe he left in certain types of sexual stuff, but not the stuff that was particularly um, um, graphic or, or lewd. Uh, mm -hmm. And then homoerotic stuff, he sort of cut across the board, anything that suggested Kafka's desire for 
male bodies, of which there yeah. are a number of examples. Uh, and then he, he um, maybe what is the most, um, what had the greatest impact on in making his addition, to, you know, such a misrepresentation of what was in the diaries, is he really diminished the sort of literary richness of all the drafts of and redrafts and rewriting of literary pieces in the diaries, mm -hmm. um, where Kafka would, you know, start the same piece of writing dozens of times and write, you know, different variations of it. And it was rough and all over the place. And he would create composites and kind of create cohesive, mm -hmm. seamless um, stories out of these fragments that, that were, you know, far more um, various and multifarious than what he put in. And then he took out like wholesale um, Kafka's rough drafts of works that were published elsewhere, either in his lifetime or that Broad published elsewhere as posthumous writings um, right, that right. could be considered works of fiction or literary works, but were written in the diaries. Yeah. Um, hmm. And so that edition served as the basis of the English translation that we had that we had until my translation. Right. So right. he he prepared that German manuscript, and then the English translators translated it in 1948-49, and that's actually what came out. It came out before the German one, actually. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, close to the same time in the late 40s, but and it led to another quirk of literary history, which was that at that time, Hannah Arendt was the editorial director of Shokin Books, where oh. this was all happening. Um, both the German and the English editions were under the aegis of the same publisher that had offices in um, Palestine, later Israel, or at that time, Israel, um, mm -hmm. and um, uh, uh, New York, um, and published works in German and in English. And she was the editorial director of the New York office that published the English edition. She worked with these translators and she noticed that Broad had cut some of these literary drafts um, from when she looked at the original typescripts. Um, and she put some back in, just like not all of them, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which was mm -hmm. interesting. Maybe she didn't want to step on his toes too much or maybe she didn't go through the whole thing as thoroughly. But, you know, at the beginning, Broad had cut down this one piece that Kafka rewrites like 11 times to just mm -hmm. four versions and she put back <laughs> in the other one. So there was yeah. this, this odd thing where for decades, German scholars of Kafka had access to more of the diaries in the English translation than they did in the German oh, edition. Oh, um, nine. And only after Broad's death did they see, you know, the whole thing that there was hmm. in both the English and the German editions, there were huge swaths of text missing and hmm. important facets of Kafka's, you know, personality and, and life and, and yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there is a certain um, I, I could see I, I never read the, the the it's one piece of of Kafka material I had never really read was the uh, first English translation. And I guess mm -hmm. I could see there being some virtue to like a an optimized version, right? I, I think this is clearly better. Um, partially because of the thing you're talking about in, in your intro, you you refer to um, wanting to maintain or present something like the writer's workshop like kafka's workshop in mm -hmm. in book form and i think it it is it definitely accomplishes that i mean you're certainly in, in partially accomplished by leaving everything in there so you see the notes there's one story mm -hmm. i quite like about um he's approached by this gentleman who uh is sort of seeking legal legal advice about oh, yeah. about um he had given this uh art this essay he'd written to somebody and then he thought that it showed up in the the, the I guess it's the newspaper like the next yeah, day. Yeah, he thought he'd been plagiarized, but it becomes clear he's just absolutely off his rocker. Yeah, he's just yeah. enough. And Some it's a very it's a very Kafkaesque story too. Yeah. Like it's it's 
I wouldn't have been surprised to see a slightly polished version of that in the collected short stories of right, right? by any means. Yeah. But in the middle of it, you've got it's like he writes it out over the course of two or three days. And so you've got like notes that don't have anything to do with it in between. Them. Yeah, and intervening entries are always interesting. In this yeah. There's another great example, which is this text he wrote. He started to sort of compose what seems like an essay about the literature of small nations, about Yiddish literature and Czech literature and some yeah. of the advantages um, in contrast to German literature, because he writes in German and he lived in this multilingual environment and he came into contact with Yiddish. Um, actors and became interested in these other literature, small literatures, he calls them. And he seems to be composing this essay, but there are intervening entries. And you can see that it's a pretty fractured text. And maybe when he comes back to it, he's actually saying something different from what he was saying when he first started it and so on. And Broad had presented that in his older edition as a composite that looked much more like a kind of, um, um, you know, continuous like essay yeah. that then just breaks off it being, you know, that's incomplete. But it might be because of that that scholars then picked up on that, and there's like a whole book by Deleuze and Guattari called Toward a Minor Literature, um, that a whole interpretive work that kind of takes off from this text. And I almost wonder if that work would have existed if this composite text hadn't existed. Oh, interesting, um, yeah. Because they treat it, I mean, they do other things, and they're clearly doing a kind of creative misinterpretation anyway. Like there's a lot of a lot of scholars that take an issue with this treatment, sure. yeah. um, this monograph, but. Um, uh, also, I just wonder if they would have approached it differently if they'd seen it in its disarray and and just how um, semi-articulated it was. I mean, there's so much rich material in it as it is, mm -hmm. um, but it just seems much more self-contradictory and um, discontinuous. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's that makes sense to be in. We were actually talking about this, or I was talking about this in something I was on the other day about um, seeing. Um, I've spent a, a fair amount of time in literary archives um, mm -hmm. and Kevin has too. And, and seeing the mess that writers make mm -hmm. on their way to making stuff is always incredibly illuminating. Just edifying yeah. and yeah. helpful yeah. for writers. <laughs> yeah. In the midst of this project, I met uh, a writer who lives near me and he's, you know, one of my favorite writers, uh, David Means. Mm -hmm. And, um, as we became closer, he started to share his work with me in progress. And that probably helped me a lot um, sort of to validate my sense that this is, um, I don't know, an authentic approach or, or something. Because sure. no, he even reassured yeah. me at times where I was like, I don't, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's such a mess or whatever. And I'm trying to embrace the mess, but it's really hard to navigate. And he would just like pull out a notebook and show me what the inside of his notebook looks like and be like, no, that's what you're doing as a writer. like. Um, so that was really affirming, uh, sure. just yeah, no, right. And there can be do, I mean, there can be doodles, there can be all kinds of things. There yeah. Be, which there are, there are drawings yeah, in here, yeah, exactly. um, that are reproduced. Um, is, is there any, and I didn't quite see any, was there any, like, this is maybe a silly question, but was there any like grocery list type stuff? Was there anything that <laughs> yeah. was just like, would have been fun if there was a little more, there's yeah. one thing at least that I can think of off the top of my head which is where he notes down a couple debts that he owes, mm. you know, which of course Broad had left out. Why would he leave it in when he's presenting the work the way he was? Yeah. And, you know, um, leaving it in, the main virtue of leaving it in is it it, it, it it gives readers that feel that these are a notebook, you know, where he's just jotting things down. Yeah. Um, because of course they are looking at it in book form and to sort of um, remind them of why it is this way. It's a notebook. Um, yeah. It's nice to have this little jotting. So yeah, he just said like, I owe, 
you know, this many Cronin and this many Hellers to these two people. I noted it down and, and I can't, I can't. And a, a writer who has debts, um, right? <laughs> yeah. nothing changes. Very small debts, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, well, good. Yeah, good for good for Franz. Well, we've already touched on what we're going to talk about on the After Dark. I think we're going to get into a little more of the salacious uh, sort of uh, business around sex and what Broad censored. That's going to be mm-hmm. for Patreon members at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. So we'll we'll tag on a little mini episode at the end of this with, with Ross. I'm I'm excited for that. That was very mm-hmm. interesting. And you pointed it out in the in, in the introduction as as a, a kind of an important aspect of of your work and and what it means to restore this. Uh, I was gonna say, I'm a for better or worse, often for worse, I am a theater guy, Ross. And I was struck in my perusing the the book and and reading through some of it at by how much reference to the the stage there is and the Absolutely. theater. I think I could have known I somewhere subliminally, maybe I knew subconsciously that uh, Franz would have been influenced by the theater, but it was really there. And he's like recounting the entire plots of mm-hmm. plays beat for beat. Uh, yeah, and his review of this translation, Dwight Garner said um, he could have moonlighted as a theater critic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Mm. There is. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And, and of course, that has to filter down into his writing. Um, yeah, yeah and there is so theatrical when you think about it. There's so much gesture and physical comedy and just physical strangeness and um, description of, you know, scenography in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the father standing up on the bed in the judgment and towering over the son or or people crawling into bed to with their lawyer or whatever you know? right right uh, yeah there's uh, definitely or, stuff yeah. that works in that context yeah yeah very, the yeah. metamorphosis is kind of a uh surrealist uh maybe that's the wrong word but it's, it's kind of like a chamber play he's right. taking place in this confined apartment and yeah 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 the space yeah. the spatiality of his work um and, and in particular, the plays he describes, you can see precursors of some of his figures. Like he describes these two characters in Kaftans in this Yiddish play that he sees um, and the way that they're kind of always in the background goofing around or making funny errors and, um, uh, and playing certain pivotal roles in the action too or coming in and out of the action. And then he has characters like this in, in the castle, these two assistants. Um, yeah that really seem to resemble these characters he's writing about it when he's viewing the Yiddish plays. Um, he has a, um, he has a prolonged um, one thing I was on the lookout for as I'm, I'm reading through this and I haven't been able to read the whole thing cause it is a big book, but um, I'm going to get there eventually. Um, the kind of thing you can dip in and out of. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is I kind of, I feel like this is something I can just read a few pages of. Right. <laughs> right. And, and it almost feels like you could do divination with this book. Like if you're oh, a tortured, to... if you're a tortured writer, just, Hey, pick, open this up at random. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, see what's there for you. I've had that. I don't mean to derail exactly. things, but I did it from time to time end up translating an entry that happened about a hundred years before the day I was translating it or before yeah. my birthday that year because of the hundred year yeah. Sort of span between these diaries being kept between 1909 and 1923, and then I was translating them between roughly 2014 to 2023. Right, so right. It's it like, kind of the centennial, sort of. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a centennial of the diaries for sure. Next year's a centennial of his dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew it, that sometime 
as long as I got it out by 2023, which I did just under the wire. And I never thought it would take that long. But as long as I said to myself, and it was kind of a joke because I thought I'd get it out long before that. Mm-hmm. As long as I get it out by 2023, it'll be a centennial. But yeah, so that would happen though, where I'd be like, well, what does this mean that, you know, right. this entry was written a hundred years ago on my birthday, like today. Ooh, right. um, yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Well, there's certainly, I mean, that would probably mean something to Kafka, I think, right? I think he <laughs> would be the kind of guy who would, would take note of that at least. There's a, um, page, there's a page in the diaries where he's taking note of how the names and the judgment, you know, the, the, the initials or the number of letters in the names reflect people in his life and so on. Mm-hmm. It was like a gematria kind of a, <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Uh, Ross, are you, I got to ask, are you like a, a hot property now among Kafka scholars? Do you, are you hearing from people? Like, like what is that like? <laughs> you know, well, that's I, good. That's, I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. I would never probably refer to myself as a hot property <laughs> uh, in yeah. any situation. And I don't think I am among Kafka scholars in particular, but, you know, I was concerned that I might, um, offend the sensibilities of Kafka scholars or fail to measure up to what they would hope for from something like this. Um, And I don't have, I do have the impression that Kafka scholars are generally felt that it was overdue for there to be an English version of, you know, this, the German edition that did restore the text and, you know, take away all of Broad's intervening uh, or, or uh, uh, meddling, you know, intrusions, those, that edition came out in 1990. So, there was a kind of, I mean, it's, I don't know if I could call it a clamor, you know, but within the circle of Kafka scholars, there was this waiting and this sense that it was long overdue. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess my, the first hurdle I wanted to clear would be that the scholars didn't reject my mm-hmm. translation and, and I've gotten positive <laughs> right. feedback from them. So uh, uh, from those scholars I've heard from or been in touch with, right. um, and there were people I also, um, inquired with early in the process about framing mm-hmm. it about you know i had questions right, about right, right. before i undertook it even when i was writing the proposal um so i had some communication some back and forth um so i've gotten that positive feedback that was kind of the first hurdle i wanted to clear but i think i wouldn't have been satisfied if sort of the kafka community alone had been interested in this book and there was no guarantee to me at least or there was no way of knowing for sure that um ordinary readers or ordinary lovers of Kafka too would be interested in seeing this version and this Kafka that, and so um, to the extent that I've seen, you know, um, a disproportionately positive response among um, readers on social media and people I encounter and at events that I do, that's been immensely satisfying that it, you know, you know, sometimes people would ask me doubtfully, well, who's going to read this, you know, when I was working for all those years and, and it was kind of sucking some air out of my career. They would say, well, who are the readers of, of the Kafka diary? And I'd say, well, I'd hope it would be people like when I discovered Kafka, when I was, I wasn't destined to be a German translator. I had no professional interest in Kafka at the time I discovered him. And I read the diaries when I was a teenager in the old edition in English. And I'd hope that people like that are still out there. And by having this book finally out in the world, it's confirmed for me that they are, um, that there are still plenty of people like that out there. And that's, 
basically scratches the edge completely <laughs> for me. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. they def they definitely are out there, and I don't know if it's just the particular silo that I am in on Twitter, but I feel like half of my mutuals have bought this book. Or, yeah, I don't even care. Or if it's, excited I don't about know, it. as long as it's like I don't care if it's marginal or right. if it's a niche, as long mm -hmm. as it's more than just people who have a professional interest. As much right. as I admire the people who have spent their lives devoted yeah. to Kafka and want their approval, absolutely, and mm -hmm. you know would have would feel. Um, disappointed if they were disapproving. Uh, I'm just glad that there's, however small, you know, a corner of the world it is, that there is a corner of the world, of the reading world, that still has the same, is still just as excited about this as I, as, as I have been as a reader long before I had any professional stake in it. You know? Yeah. To me, it feels like there is no, there may be no competition for another writer whose diaries would be more interesting like to me it's clearly interesting uh, as somebody who's been into kafka since i was since i s sort of got into literature of any kind um but there i think there is enthusiasm i think people are very interested at this look inside of his head why do you think that is i mean I, mm -hmm. I, i'm sure you know why you're interested in kafka why do you think there is at his centennial, there seems to be as much enthusiasm about this admittedly kind of odd, unusual yeah. writer, right? Mm -hmm. why, do, why do people care about him still, in your opinion? Yeah, in some ways it seems so so evident to me that then it's hard to articulate because, but but just to kind of add to that, to your question before I attempt a sketch of an answer maybe, okay. um, you know, why is it that there's so few objectors to the to the um love that kafka's received mm -hmm. you know in his uh, after his death like I, I found you know there's Edmund wilson sort of um descent to the um at the very beginning of the kafka vogue you know or what he thought of as a vogue for kafka uh where it's like a descent i think it's even titled like a dissenting opinion on franz kafka or whatever um so there's here and there in literary history there's maybe a, a sprinkling of, of people, but it seems like Kafka has been so widely embraced at across disciplines in academia and by ordinary readers and writers and artists um, in particular. And I mean, I think some of the simplest explanations are just the um, sheer, you know, fertility of his imagination and invention that, and who else can you think of who's, really created things that were so uh, uh, distinctive and compelling. Um, I mean, maybe I'm just restating the question now and the answer, yeah. why mm. is that so compelling and distinctive? Um, his strangeness has always been a feature more than a bug, or maybe I shouldn't say yeah. that. Uh, I was just gonna say, what's, yeah. what's the German word? He, what's the famous German word? Ungezifa, yeah. Oh. Ungezifa, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, for bug, it would be Avanza, or yeah, <laughs> but that's not the word he uses. It is the word he used in his everyday colloquial speech when he talked about the metamorphosis. Apparently, he called it huh. uh, his 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 Vanson Geschichte, his his bug story. Oh um, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so um, uh, I think his strangeness has always been part of the appeal. There is the appeal of the image that I kind of take issue with in my introduction and that I'm somewhat um, positioning my translation as an intervention in, which is this sanctification of Kafka after his death as a kind of um, martyr to literature and a mm -hmm. kind of literary saint that 
you know, he had, he had, and still has even because, um, somebody was saying to me, nobody's really moved the, the needle on sanctification. Like no matter what you sort of expose about Kafka's, um, Kafka as a flesh and blood human, you know, who was, who made spelling errors and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to revere him as a kind of literary saint. And this, so there's that sense of him as this authentic tortured artist that is a myth, um, but also reflects something about his literary voice and his devotion and agony, you know, uh, he, as a creator that I think is really appealing for other artists and anyone engaged in any sort of creative struggle that isn't just, um, uh, that, that don't have complete ease and fluidity to their, uh, um, yeah, his, a, I mean, his modernity, his, his sort of the fact that he, he's never ceased to be dealing with themes that are quintessentially modern. Um, you know, um, uh, he's one of the first to really, um, whose work really centered around such themes, and these themes have continued to be just as salient, you know, just as or just as relevant. Um, yeah, we we sort of have made the point in some of our conversations about Kafka that for all of the talk of say 1984 being prescient or Brave New World being prescient, it, to me it feels like Kafka was not necessarily in. Uh, the sort of pieces that he put on the board plot wise or premise wise, but just in how it feels to be oh, yeah. living, right. That there, he, he seemed to capture that. And so to me, whenever I read it, it feels like, yeah, you could write this basically right now. Um, well, he has just, that, there's yeah. a great paragraph in, in the diaries where he is dictating a letter to oh, one yeah. of the, one of the typists and, he finally finds the word and uh, he's just so overcome with disgust at yeah. his talents being used this way. Right. And if that's from his flesh, so mm-hmm. by, by finding this, by using his literary, whatever it is, by, by exploiting his literary skills for this um, office work. For this Banality. Yeah he's, yeah, he's robbed his body of a piece of its flesh. Yeah, and that's the word, the word that he was seeking is the yeah. piece of his flesh, I guess. Yeah, uh, oh, tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. Um, this brings me to a question. I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts on it, because he talks about writing um, as, well, what was writing to Kafka? What do you, th- how do you, what do you think it meant to him, the act of it, the project of it? What I mean, was this it for be- him? part of the origin of sort of the saint myth is that I think for, for Hint, he really seemed to treat it as a kind of salvation. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of, that's one piece of it. I mean, another piece of it was, it's so complicated, I guess, but, um, you know, it, it, he writes a lot about writing and about what it is to him. He says things like, I'm nothing but literature, or he says, you know, um, as soon as I, um, realized that I had some kind of, what does he say, that I had this penchant for depicting my dreamlike inner life. That's the exact quote. Well, mm-hmm. from my translation. Um, right. uh, that as soon as I realized I had this, because I had such limited energies on the whole, they all thronged to this one area of literature and atrophied in every other direction. So that's why I don't have enough energy to really actualize myself as an office worker, as a domestic spouse, you know, because he was so conflicted about getting married, starting and breaking off engagements and affairs, um, you know, uh, that, that he only 
you know, he had the sense of himself as as not having quite enough vitality or or or, or virility to to do more than um, um, serve kind of um, his literary gift. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting a little lost here, but it's no. um, that's but all right. Writing, would you would you mind if yeah. I read just a little bit? Because I think I have. Yeah, that might help. Yeah, I think I have I the exact part you were starting, you were quoting from here. It's a, it's a relatively short paragraph, but I, I, I kind of highlighted it because I, I loved it. <laughs> um, so this is from the 6th of August, 1914. Um, so, quote, from the perspective of literature, my fate is very simple. The penchant for depicting my dreamlike inner life has pushed everything else aside. And all this has atrophied in a terrible way and doesn't cease to atrophy. Nothing else can ever satisfy me. But now my strength for that depiction is quite incalculable. Perhaps it has vanished forever. Perhaps it will come over me again. The circumstances of my life are certainly not favorable to it. Thus I waver, fly incessantly to the peak of the mountain, but can keep myself up there for scarcely a moment. Others waver too, but in lower regions, with stronger powers. If they are in danger of falling, they are caught by the relative who walks beside them for that purpose. I, however, waver up there. It is, alas, not death, but the eternal torments of dying. Yeah. Ooh, and it just feels like he's, I, I, I've, when you said salvation, he saw it as salvation. I feel like that is quite apt. But there is also this sort of torture thing, right? There's a sort of like, this thing is in his life and that's, he. it's not like he chose it from his Right, well, that those heights are sort of, it would be salvation if he could be in those heights without wavering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I guess um, that, that, uh, you know, it, or he, he, he's not on the small scale, you know, he's not, he's not um, um, exploiting his full strength on a smaller scale project that wouldn't be salvation, but maybe could be actualizable. Right. Uh, right. You could, know, he's not, you know, what do we call it now? Setting attainable goals or whatever. Right, it wasn't right. cost of strength. Right. Right, um, right. Or the, or something that he really explored in his fiction when there are goals in his fiction, they're always unattainable. I'm right. sorry. I don't know if this vacuuming is going to get. Oh no, no, we can only, that's totally fine. No I can't worries. In my office yeah, at yeah. Later hour. That's uh, right. Perfect. Okay. That's as it should be. Yeah, right. For, yeah. The, yeah <laughs> set and setting here. Uh, yeah. You know the great the great film Brazil, the Terry yes. Gilliam film. That, that is film. so. I love that film too. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It's so clearly influenced by by Kafka. Yeah. He even has uh, this duo that resembles the assistants uh, mm-hmm. that come into the apartment. They're doing like duct work or something. One of them's right. really tall and one is short. And yes. then the castle, the assistants also change height. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have I you seen that, the the Hanukkah adaptation of the the castle? Where no, I had just... it, I had in mind to watch a lot of the adaptations. I read a great book called Kafka Translated by Michelle Woods um, that also deals with adaptations, um, film adaptations. Just so um, she's really exploring all the different ways Kafka sort of reinvented and. Um, mm. It's a great book. Anyways, that that gave me the idea of watching. But you want to say something? Yeah. About yeah. No, not at all. I just I I really admire Hanukkah as a director mm-hmm. and his adaptation of the castle. I don't think I'm giving away the ending, but the it it quite literally just ends where the novel ends. It doesn't oh, nice. try to. Yeah. So what a I just think that move is so exciting. Yeah, worth yeah. watching. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the trial was showing right here mm-hmm. very recently, and I missed it. You know, and I had every intention of. Seeing it, it had just been restored, I think. 
Um, but yeah, I haven't gone back and done that as much as I yeah. would like to. That that Orson Welles adaptation, I, I don't know about the, I haven't, I don't think seen this restored version, but the version I have seen is excellent. I, yeah. Orson Welles takes a couple creative liberties with it, but I think they're carefully done. Like mm-hmm. it, to me, it works. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a, and it's Orson Welles' favorite film of his own. Yeah, um, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So quite, in, it's quite interesting. It's quite well done. I personally, I prefer his ads or his ad reads personally. Orson, Orson Welles. Wells. Yeah. The, <laughs> About peas. Ah, the French. Ah. <laughs> uh, you familiar with these, Ross? Where no. some, oh, there's some really wonderful. This is a tangent, but if there's some very funny, uh, look up Orson Welles uh, voiceover excerpts. Yeah. Where he, yeah. he takes umbrage at being directed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, he got yeah. Orson, Orson Welles got a little hard up towards the end, and he had to do some things he would have rather not have done for money. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. the results are pretty funny. This is um, a bit of a, a personal question, uh, but it's also professional. Um, Ross, where did you? Uh, was to uh, where did you pick up your German? Yeah, uh, yeah. I took it in college actually, initially. Mm. Um, so junior year of college, I went to Prague for one semester, uh, which is not German speaking. I mean, in Kafka's lifetime, there was a big German speaking part of Prague, that's not the case now. Um, but I was there somewhat in the footsteps of Kafka, you know. My, my attraction to Prague has a lot to do with Kafka, um, it, not only to do with Kafka, but. Um, and I, uh, uh, that's when I began learning German while I was there. And, and then also because I was in Prague, I was visiting German speaking places on, you know, day trips and, uh, and on breaks and so on. Uh, and then when I came back to college, I had kind of finished everything else I needed to finish for my major and took a lot of German in anticipation of going to Berlin the year after college, which I knew I wanted to do after I visited junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I wanted to go back and I was applying for fellowships and ways of getting to Berlin um, and luckily got one and went there for a year after college. So I spent that senior year of college really immersed in learning German um, and kind of uh, really obsessed with learning German. Like I remember I jumped from, you know, having taken some beginning courses to a seminar where we were reading Freud and just because I was willing to sit there with the text and look up every single word and look up whatever was happening in the sentence and sort of, you know, precursor to translation, like really decoding um, mm-hmm. a language that, but at, that at the time I had no access to until I decoded it. Um, wow. And then, you know, I gained a lot of knowledge that way. I wrote a senior thesis on a German um, language uh, poet, Paul Zeylan. Um, mm-hmm. and dealt with it, you know, the originals of his texts as in a sort of academic way where, um, and then when I got to Berlin, I had all this latent knowledge, but a lot of it was not, you know, um, applicable to daily life. Yeah. It's like, I had to talk to the plumber, but I was talking like a 19th century, you know, German <laughs> novel. Whatever. Um, so that was a great, uh, moment of kind of, um, finding my way into the actual living contemporary language. And, you know, I never even knew I wanted to do that. When I started with German, I thought it was just to be able to read these authors that I so loved um, in the original, which is also, I've I've thought about this, that there's a slight irony to my craving for the originals coming back around to me, becoming a translator myself and not really um, 
having that same valorization of the original as I did at the time where I thought, you know, I kind of fell into that myth, like you have to read them in the original. Right. And then, I mean, what I found was, yes, I discovered things in the original that then I wanted to translate into right. English and, and continue that process. But in any case, I, you know, it was when I, it's probably even before I went there, but when I started to interact with the language as a learner, uh, then it just took, like it just became a language that fascinated me and that um, appealed to the way my mind works sort of the way I like to express myself. Um, and uh, then I had much a much broader interest in the language than just like being able to read Nietzsche or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I got a chance to explore that when I lived there and had to use it in all different facets of life. And that's when I became aware of more contemporary German literature too, and just what was happening in Germany now, as opposed to Thomas Mann's time or whatever. Right, yeah. right. What is... A and not just Germany, by the way, German speaking world. German speaking, yeah, right, right. What, what is. Uh, can't um, forget the Swiss. Right. Oh, yeah. no, no. I mean, my interest really is for German language literature. Mm -hmm. Even anytime somebody like is about to publish my bio and it says, uh, you know, a, a translator of German literature, I always ask, like, is there room to add the word language of German language okay. literature? Because I know German means the right. language, but it could sound like it's just the country. Mm, right from the country, German, right. Austrian literature and Swiss literature. And there's plenty of German speaking writers who yeah. lived in. Romania or like Kafka in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm -hmm. Did you, one more question along these yes, lines sorry. before, uh, did you have a second language before learning Deutsch, learning German or Not was this your first? Way. I, I had right. taken one in, in school. So I'd taken French yeah. for mm. six years. And even when I first got to college and there was a language requirement, I thought, well, I take French. So I took another French course at the level I was at. Um, and like, I can still use French to, look at the French translations of say Kafka's diaries um, and, and see what they did. Um, and I recently got a couple volumes in French and I'm not sure whether I'll be able to just read them straight off the page or whether it'll be an arduous process because I haven't just tried to read in French in a long time. Well, I'm, never, I'm just going to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'm just going to say I, this is just complimentary. That's an, that is an incredible feat to pick it up in, in university and uh, to go and sure. live there and then to end up, yeah, and then to end up becoming a, a translator, you know, a very serious accomplishment. Very cool. You know, you, you must have become obsessed, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it didn't feel like so much. I mean, it was a great effort in that I, like, strenuously applied myself to learning it, but mm -hmm. it, it it was it was like an addiction, you know, like the way you would strenuously apply yourself to like winning a video game or something. Right. Like I, I just wanted to do it. So it didn't feel like a great uh, peak to scale or something. I sure. was just endlessly fascinated with like, oh, what else can you do? Oh, you can do that in German. I want to be able to do that with my right. sentence. Or I, I, I think it's a beautiful language. I think it gets a bad rap. I don't, I don't think I need to sell that to you. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> well, yeah, right. Indeed. What uh, do you have a favorite German word? I do actually. I forgot I did. Uh, um, it's uh, the word "shonen." Uh, do you know it? Shonen. Uh, S C H O N E N. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So no. To shonen something is to kind of preserve it to keep it well preserved like oh don't put your coffee mug down on the coffee table we have to you know ah. uh, keep it from getting damaged or keep it you know in good condition 
That would be yeah. one use of shonen. But what I love about the word is it's semantic range. So it also means something like sparing, like fresh shonen. Like mm. if you're fresh shonen after an accident or disaster, you've been spared by the disaster. Ah. What shonen includes that I love that 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 makes it a word that I find really um, poetic and beautiful is that it includes this sense of kind of inevitable decay and destruction. Like you're not protecting something in the sense that you would completely um, save it, even though it kind of means saving too or salvaging. Um, you're, you're just doing your best to sort of stave off the inevitable destruction. And, you know, the way that like, of course, a coffee table is going to have ordinary wear and tear, but you put a coaster on it for shonen. Concern for things that like, you wouldn't just be careless with the things around you and just destroy them, you know, willy nilly, yeah. but you would um, take care to kind of, and it can be translated as taking care. Like when it says, you know, um, uh, fragile handle with care, that's kind of shown. Like, mm. I think Kafka says at some point his, that Kafka's, his father reproaches him for his own anger toward his father because his father has to be Gashon. Like he has to be handled with care because he's, mm. he's been anxious and he's weak and he's aging or whatever. Um, yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Yes. It's so good. You know, you didn't give the answer. You're like, oh, I like Gemutlichkeit or I like Schadenfreude or whatever. You know, that's yeah. a that's a heavy answer. I'm gonna look that up after this yeah. episode. I'm like yeah, very cool. Variations of it like Fashant and uh mm. other ones I'm not thinking of, like uh, yeah, like Shonung or like it could it could be an active consideration too, like to spare someone's feelings, you know. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, Quite it's such like a that. valuable, interesting language. It's yeah. a lot of depth uh, in German. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of Heidegger uses the word shonen. I think he may he because he often talks about care, zorgen, and um, not that we should get into Heidegger. <laughs> Sorry, it's a different a different <laughs> no, episode right. in, in ten years yeah. when you translate uh, some Heidegger. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do have one thing, and I hope this isn't too much of a sidetrack, because I uh, I love the Blue Octavo notebooks. Yeah. And I feel like no one really ever talks about them. I think partially because they're sort of odd, like they, in terms of where do you fit them? They're not really stories. And, they're, and I know that those were written during the same time as these diaries. Even um, in a kind of gap, yeah. There's yeah. A kind of gap in the diaries when he started using those notebooks. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. So he yeah. sort of he sort of moved over to the Blue Octavo notebooks, yeah. and then at some point, kind of decided he wasn't working in those anymore, and came back to the diaries, that's which I that... think were like brown quarto notebooks or something. Okay, because <laughs> in German you use these colors <laughs> right. and sizes. Like we don't actually, yeah. I, as far as I know, maybe somewhere in the UK, I don't think we really use these in English, other than when we talk about German work. Yeah, uh, yeah. But and like, there's something about brown quarto doesn't have the same right, ring to it as yeah, blue yeah. Blue Octavo for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I'm correct. You know, this is something that happens to me a lot in these types yeah. of conversations because in fact I'm not a Kafka specialist. I just spent a lot of time reading this stuff. Right. I get things wrong and like there's always something afterwards. I look back at the conversation and I'm like, oh man. There's oh, one where right. I described a guy who was a it's like uh, I think he was Jewish. He was like a self-hating Jew, right? And I was talking about some obscure German, it was, he's just a German anti-Semite, you know. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, you were. Like, yeah. yeah, you were almost right, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he he critical. Wasn't one himself. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, right. Um, I, I tend to uh, get some things wrong, but anyway, the diaries were certainly not Blue Octavo. Mm, these diaries. Um, mm. So the Blue Octavo notebooks. I mean, he didn't call them like these notebooks. He referred to 
in the notebooks themselves, he refers to them as his diaries, right? Mm -hmm. He says, like, starting a new diary, or these diaries are this or that, or I'm going to give the, di I, I just handed the diaries over to Melena, because at some point he gave them to Melena, and then, and all the pages in that notebook he ripped out, and then in the next entry, which, you know, was continued in the rest of that notebook, uh, where he finished the diaries, he said, I just gave, you know, all of the diaries to Melena. So those were, those were the, um, materials that we know he called his diaries and thought of as diaries and mm -hmm. referred to as diaries where there's hard evidence. And then the Blue Octava notebooks and some other papers and so on, he said he ends up treating somewhat the same way, like just, just as a diaries, you know, he doesn't keep strictly to a diaristic mode of writing. He also writes stories in them or, or drafts letters in them or draws in them. He, mm -hmm. he, he tended to use whatever writing material was at hand to do whatever writing he was move to do. Um, so uh, in some other notebooks and papers, he'll, he'll write what are sort of indistinguishable from the entries in his diaries and their format and their content. Yeah. Um, but he didn't call those diaries per se. So there's definitely a blurriness to the designations. And they were, you know, decided after his death, what would be published as diaries, what would be published as the Blue Octavo notebooks, or as in the new edition, it's just, um, there are several volumes of, of posthumous writings Nachbelas and a shift in that are, um, uh, you know, I think they're chronological, but um, they're not based on, you know, notebook type or whatever. Right. Um, and those are um, separate from what, what are published as the diaries. Um, yeah, um, that's, so, that's interesting. So yeah. I, I had always, I had never been quite clear as if the Blue Octavo stuff and I, I'm not expecting you to have spent nearly as much time with that as as, as the the book you you translated. But <clears throat> I never understood like was this a and I guess you sort of answered that question. Then fundamentally, it's blurry. Like was this a special project? Because there is like this mm -hmm. thematic coherence to. Yeah, the there's something different about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's more it's, it's more like aphorisms, right? Yeah, until yeah. It's he's philosophical. Um, yeah. So, um, and you do see some of that in the diaries, but not exactly. in the sort of focused manner where right. it's like one after another. I'm, I think most know. of it comes after the Blue Octavo notebooks when he goes back to the diaries and he writes some more, he writes a series of aphorisms in the diaries that have some things in common yeah. after it. So it's like between 1917 and again, I could get this slightly wrong, but yeah. it's between 1917 and sometime in the maybe 1919 or 1920. Yeah, and he's writing these book, notebooks and he's writing these kind of more aphoristic, philosophical, um, condensed, right? Because we think of Kafka as um, at once like somebody who writes really long, complex sentences and he's a master of brevity, right? He can write right. these, you know, a cage goes in search of a bird or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. These one-liners are these um, really short, um, puzzling stories that are almost riddles, you know? Um, yeah, so he definitely was experimenting with another form, but then you see him in those 1920 or 22 entries, um, in those later entries in these diaries, in my translation, you see him using that form later on as well. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't be the first writer to um, sort of discover or cultivate a skill for the aphorism and then become slightly addicted to it. Like we did an uh -huh. episode on um, Charan and he was sort of the same way. Once he discovered he could write basically bullet points, it was like, uh -huh. all over for him. Um, right. So yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it is a it is a certain kind of skill. I don't know that any everybody can do that, right? Very sort of pithy, yeah. interesting, you know, enigmatic 
one right. or two sentences at a time. Yeah. Right. And enigmatic is a key word for Kafka's because they're particularly enigmatic. Like his, his aphorisms, they don't usually amount to, in fact, a cage goes in search of a bird was maybe a bit of a misleading one to say it's just easy to remember. Right. Um, right. I mean, hopefully I'm quoting it right, but it's, you know, that, that um, sounds right. It's easy to remember, uh, but it's actually one that's a lot more, um, I mean, it's got a lot of multivalence, but many of them are much more baffling than, yeah. than that. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, um, so but the question of the status of different writings, of course, is in a way circular. It leads us back to the fact that this was all just a mass of materials he never intended for publication. And, um, you know, this was just all different sorts of writing that was scattered all around and, mm-hmm. um, um, I think, you know, an addition that kind of draws attention to that is something I value. Um, that reminds us that, that this is a, um, that that's what this was and that now we have access to it and we're, there's so much richness in it. Um, um, but it's important to remember that it, in a way that, that these aren't finished works and that these are showing us a process and sort of open-ended process of experimentation and self-revision Um, And for me, that's where a lot of the interest and the appeal of it lies, too. That may be for some a matter of taste, of course. Um, But um, uh, so making these really sharp distinctions probably isn't that great an idea. Um, But there are there there is certainly some justification for um, for publishing these as as the diaries and even other posthumous writings in some other form. Um, Certainly uh, you can do anything with selections from. Uh, this material and there are many great collections that just kind of are selections from the unpublished writing and they can mm-hmm. include a great letter, a great diary entry, yeah. a great series of aphorisms. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, there's and, a certain, there's a certain logic to that too. I'm sure you could, you know, there could be a Kafka on fill in the blank and it could be just the drawing together of various, you know, mm-hmm. bits that he has on, on a subject. But I mean, if we're kind of winding down here. I, I do I, I do just want to reiterate like how exciting this thing is. This book is, I read the intro and when you're sort of describing your philosophy about this, your approach, I, um, I mean, it's no secret for our audience, but I'm a writer too. Kevin's a writer. I have notebooks, Kevin, when you publish my diaries, please lean a little on the Max Broad side. Take things out. We all it's all, actually. it's all staying in, Brad. It's all staying in. Um, yep. um, I might even embellish a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but, right. Be, but I'll do it. I'll do it. My uh, best friend. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the the sturdiest uh, friend I ever had. It'll all be in German, and we'll have to hire Ross. Yeah, somebody will have to hire Ross to translate me. <laughs> um, but. But I just, I just, like I'm saying, I want to just reiterate that this really does. I mean, it, we're never going to be able to be inside Kafka's head entirely. Um, and this is, I think, as close as we're ever going to get. And I'm just so impressed with Thank what you you've so done much. here and the, and the sort of the sort of courage to say, no, no, it all goes in like that. That's impressive. There were um, times so. where that took a little courage, where, where I, you know, where I was, I mean, it, it's, I, I call it courage, but it felt like fear, you know, <laughs> there were times where it was scary to, to, to leave in things that I, I thought, well, I'm just going to get blamed for making a mistake here, making a, making a mess of something. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, so it is actually, 
not so much courage as fear. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a scary concept. I'm just <laughs> glad that other people find it appealing the way I did. What yeah. I do. Yeah. 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 It's a very exciting volume. Please buy it. It's the F Kafka diaries, the Franz Kafka diaries translated by Ross Benjamin. And we're going to come back and talk for another I think 30 minutes at this rate. I feel, I feel like we're just getting started yeah. for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Brad, thanks for arranging this Ross. Thanks sure. for your time. We'll, we'll keep going for a little bit longer, but yeah, really uh, very impressive work. Uh, one quick question before we pause briefly, then come back when you finish the project, mm-hmm. did you celebrate somehow? What kind of sound to Kafka like, but it was it's really hard to pinpoint when it's finished. <laughs> like, you know, when I sent it to my publisher, it wasn't finished. In fact, I had a first publisher. We won't even go into that, but you know, I had to find a new publisher a, a year later. And uh uh um that's complicated. All I can say, all I'll say about it now is that the publisher where it ended up is where it should have begun. It was just sort of a quirk of circumstance that there was ever a different publisher to speak of. Um mm-hmm. uh but anyway, uh then there's like, you know. Uh, get it in, but I still have to put the page numbers into the notes or the final, you know. So and then and then I'm still working on things when they just yank it out of my hands because it has to go to right. production. I'm still trying to fix, you know, things and and make sure that I've dotted all the eyes. And uh, so uh, uh, this is just now one extended celebration, I think, because it's it's once it's out in the world, that's the only way it's really really finished. All yeah. right, and then, <laughs> very good. All right, Ross, where can people find you? Your website. Yeah, Ross M for Meckler, my middle name, Ross M Benjamin.com. And similarly, Instagram, Twitter. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank cool. you so much, Ross. This has been fantastic. Thank you both so much. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm gonna my nightmares are gonna be about like offending all of the Kafka scholars and they and they come to you in your <laughs> dreams. You know, just sort of... Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs>